Don't forget Carly in the back there. Okay, guys? All right. Um, we are in the book of First Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn there, please? <clears throat> Tonight, we're going to review. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Thessalonians. Um, matter of fact, it's been like six, eight weeks, maybe nine. It's been a long time. But the Lord has been doing some really, really beautiful things on our Wednesday night prayer meetings. We are seeing things that we have, have never seen before. People getting saved, people being delivered from demonic oppression, people being healed, and people getting on fire for the Lord. And I'm I, I just very thankful that God is doing a work in our midst and we can actually see it. It's really good. But we want to uh, get caught up now in the book of, of Thessalonians, um, or the letter to the Thessalonians, Thessalonica. I'm going to mess that up many times tonight. You guys know that already, right? Right? Right. In the <laughs> I'm looking at eyes, but there's nobody responding. Eyes are, you know, lights on, no one's home. There it is. Um, when we finish the book, of Thessalonians, we're going to jump into the Old Testament and go through the book of Daniel, okay? And Exodus, we're almost done with that, and then we're going to switch up on Sunday mornings and go into the book of Hebrews, which is pretty much the companion book for the book of Exodus. If you notice, oftentimes we were quoting from Hebrews as we were going through the tabernacle and through the law and those things. It's called the book of better things, and indeed it is. So I'm excited about being able to do that and get into a, a new book and a, a new challenge. But tonight we want to go through First Thessalonians, and we want to review a little bit, okay? So we're going to get through the first two chapters in review style, pick up in chapter 3 next week. Um, first Thessalonians was written by... The Apostle Paul. Any surprise there? He wrote most of the New Testament. Quite a, quite a prolific writer. And it was written to the church at? Thank you. Which is on the west coast of Greece, by the way. Just so you know. I don't know what the surfing is like there. But I wouldn't mind giving it a shot, you know. By the Aegean Sea. It was written about uh, 53 or 54 A.D or CE, depending on if you are PC or not, okay? It, Paul was in Corinth at the time. Um, he was not able to make it to uh, Thessalonica. Uh, for some reason, the Lord had him stay in Corinth, which is basically just across the Aegean Sea from where he was, just go further west from Thessalonica, and then you can you would be in Corinth. And he wrote this during his second missionary journey, and they believe that this is actually his very first letter that he ever wrote to the churches. Um, politically, what's going on, which is uh, you know appropriate for what we're going through here. Uh, I'll be careful how I say that. Uh, 
Nero is on the throne. Okay, uh, you guys know about the emperor Nero, right? He um, was quite a piece of work. Uh, he didn't rule for very long as far as emperors go, only from 54 A.D. to 68 A.D. Uh, he was one of the most notorious emperors of Rome, and he was known for executing anyone who didn't agree with him, including his mother, by the way. And he was after his brothers, too. He, he was, uh, like I said, a piece of work. Now, more specifically to the writing here, in Caesarea Philippi, which is a place that is close to where Paul, um, or to Thessalonica, uh, violence has erupted. There's been a lot of civil unrest because uh, the Roman garrison, which was made up of Syrians, stirred up trouble between the pagans and the Jews. And the Jews armed themselves with clubs and swords, and they met all in the marketplace, and they had, well... They had a riot, or maybe it's not a riot. It was a peaceful protest, okay? And they were not wearing masks either. Now, the governor of Judea at the time, okay, and this is across the Mediterranean, is Antonius Felix, and he ordered his troops to fight off um, these attacks from these pagans and Nero was asked to arbitrate, and he sided with the pagans, and he relegated the Jews to second-class citizen status. Um, what does that mean, to be relegated to second-class citizen? Well, your voice isn't heard. You don't count. You got nothing to say about anything, okay? Um, you could be discriminated against. As a matter of fact, you can be persecuted and no one would care. So in light of that, Paul writes this letter to this church who's starting to get a little nervous because of the violence that's occurring because it seems to them that the wrath of God is breaking out. And Paul is going to correct that misconception. He's going to affirm the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ because they thought that they had missed it. That with all of this breaking out, surely it was the end times and they had missed the second coming. So he's going to assure them and affirm to them that no, you haven't missed anything yet. And here is how to live godly in such times with the second coming in view. Now, I want to tell you that as we go through our times and seasons right now, um, this has a lot to say of how we also should be behaving ourselves in these trying times. Um, there is no need, absolutely no need to be despairing. Absolutely no need to be hanging our head and whining and moping about the election. Now, some may be rejoicing, and they may be sitting here in our midst, and that's fine. I hope you voted your conscience. I voted my conscience. Didn't do much good, but I voted my conscience. 
but the point is, is that God is still sovereign. And I'll talk more about that on Sunday morning. But anyway, this is all, again, looking at the bottom line. How many of you guys are bottom line oriented? Gentlemen, you should be bottom line oriented. You know, what's the bottom line? Well, the bottom line is that it's not going to be right until Jesus returns. Right? Billy Graham said, Bible teaching about the second coming of Christ is the only ray of hope that shines as an ever-brightening beam in a darkening world. I say amen to that, Billy. You got that right. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 1, all right? And it says, Paul, Silvanus, he's also known as Silas, by the way, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, now, I'm going to, again, I'm just doing an overview here, so there's going to be a lot of details that I'm not going to get into. This is just review. Again, this is also one of Paul's first epistles, and here his apostleship is not being challenged like it is in most of the other apostle, other epistles. And there he always defends his apostleship. Here he doesn't because he doesn't need to. And he starts off with grace and peace. Chuck Smith calls these the Siamese twins of the New Testament. You see them linked together, joined at the hip, and every, every, almost in every letter of Paul's, grace and peace. And you can't experience the peace of God until you've accepted the grace of God. That's the way that works. Verse 2, it says, We give thanks to God always for you all. He was from the south. Okay. We give thanks to God always for y'all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the third time he's mentioned Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of people think that's his his first, middle, and last name, okay? And that's not true. Um, Jesus is his name. Christ is his mission. And Lord is what he is. It's his title, if you will, okay? Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. <clears throat> I love this. This gives me a great, great example to follow, and I do follow it, praying for the people who serve here at Calvary Chapel Arrowhead, giving th thanks, and I mean very profound thanks, remembering their, their work of faith and their labor of love and their patience of hope. These are the great three, faith, hope, and love. How many of you recognize that from 1 Corinthians 13? Right now remain these three faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. Right. <clears throat> faith is the work that God requires of us. Turn to John six. OK, in your Bibles, turn to John chapter six. Look at verse twenty nine. <clears throat> faith is the work that God requires of us. John 6, 28, 
the people, these aren't the Pharisees or anything, they're just people who are watching Jesus, and they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's it. It's not much work. It's simply a choice that you need to make, a choice of faith. That is the work that we are to do. Hope, hope is what sustains us, okay? Faith is the work God requires of us, then hope is what sustains us in the work. It's not a gee, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, like um, many of us had on Tuesday night, or many of us had when the lottery hit like 300 million or something like that. It's a firm, ex- firm expectation of coming good. It's like every payday. You firmly expect the coming good of a paycheck to be deposited into your account, right? That is your hope and your great expectation. So the hope, the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is what sustains us. And what it's speaking of there is the second coming. The hope, the firm expectation of his return. And then finally, love is what motivates the works okay so faith is the work hope is what sustains the work but love is what motivates the work turn to first corinthians 13 and look at verse 1 and you probably have got this memorized already most of you guys are seasoned saints i think a little garlic a little a little I don't know. What's another seasoning? That's the only one I know. Thank you. (laughs) Love is what motivates us. 1 Corinthians 13.1, Paul says, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And then later, right there, he says, And even if I give all of my clothes to the poor and burned at the stake, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. You know, we're going to be judged on what we do. We're not going to be judged for whether we were successful in what we did. We're going to be judged by what motivated you to do what you do. Start a church. Two people come. You stay faithful at it, but you did it because you love the Lord. Then that's going to be of great reward versus having a church of two million and uh, buying several jet airplanes, and yet you did it simply so you could get the latest and the greatest. Um, Love is what should be our motivation. So the Thessalonians are waiting with patience for the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. Now in verse 4, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul gives thanks, and this is what he says, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So I'm thanking you for your labors of love, your works of faith, but I'm also also giving thanks for your election by God. I'm thanking God that he chose you is what he's saying. I'm glad God chose you. I'm glad God chose you. And did you know that God has chosen you? Are you aware of that? Okay, John fifteen sixteen. 
this just happens to be my, my life verse. You guys have a life verse, a verse that you cling to? This is one, and I bring this up to God a lot, okay? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Of course, this is Jesus speaking, and he's saying, I didn't choose him, that he chose and appointed me. So when I start tackling things of the ministry, I want to remind God of this, all right? Uh, hey, dude, you chose me, okay? You told me you wanted me to do this, so I guess the results are really up to you, aren't they? Because you've appointed that I should bear fruit, and in that same chapter, chapter 15, John tells us, in this our fa my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So, <clears throat> Father, Give me a whole lot of fruit. Help me to bear a whole lot of fruit. And the cool thing is, is that it will remain. It's not going to rot or spoil, but it will remain. And it will be part of what I present before God when he comes and returns. The fruit that has been gained from my life, I can present to him as a thank offering. Because it's him that did it. He that did it. All right. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Paul says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So the gospel that he preached of Jesus Christ living a perfect life, Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, being arrested crucified, buried, and rising again, that gospel didn't come to them in word only. In other words, it wasn't just stories that he was telling them. He wasn't just preaching it. There was also power in the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't his persuasive oratorical, oratorical skills. I don't know if that's a word. I just made it up. But it was the power of the Spirit demonstrated it in the miracles that he performed. Um, <clears throat> remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does it say? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, right? And that word power is dunamis in the Greek, which is where we get our word dynamite. That's right. Very good. Dynamite. It's also where we get the word dynamic, which I think is a better word because there are a lot of Christians who are exploding everywhere, and they probably... Need just to chill out a little bit. <clears throat> but there's that dynamic. That dynamic of casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead, which Paul did. Okay, But there's also the fruit of the spirit. The spirit, it's like spinach and spirit. It's, it's spirit food, right? The fruit of the spirit, which is, you guys know this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness self-control against such there is no law because who wouldn't want to be around that it's stuff that is is transformative it's stuff that bears witness to a very good character now if i bear a lot of that fruit which do you think is going to have more of an effect upon people the razzle dazzle of a miracle well that'll get their attention 
that that only lasts so long. What really makes a difference is the transformed character. It's a person who is being totally spirit-filled without the show, filled with the love. That, that will turn the world upside down. All right, let's go to verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now remember that the Jews had been stirring up the people against Paul. No matter where he went, there were a group of Jews that would follow him and cause trouble and basically turn the town's people against him. Um, when he came to the city of Thessalonica, the same thing happened. And that's the affliction that he's talking about here, okay? At the same time, civil unrest is raising its ugly head as the Romans are relegating the Jews to second-class citizen, and the Jews are taking it out on this new sect called the Way, um, and people who were not Jews thought they were of the Jews, and the Jews are saying, no, not these guys, they're not of us. Please don't associate us with these people. Because the rumor had it that these people were committing incest and were cannibals, all right? So it wasn't quite the politically correct group that you wanted to be, you know, identified with. So they were abused. Now, notice that in verse 6, it says, you received the word in much affliction with joy. Do you notice an oxymoron there? Affliction and joy? I mean, you've got to be some sort of a masochist to desire affliction to get some sort of joy out of it. Well, here's the deal. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. The joy the Christian has is a unique joy, and it is only for Christians. And it's only given to by Jesus Christ. And it is not dependent upon circumstances, but upon the strength and quality of your relationship with God. Joy depends upon the strength and the quality of your relationship with God. John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Yeah, no, that's it. That your joy may be full. I was going to say full and overflowing, but you get the idea. Now, earlier in John 15, he also said, Abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So one of the benefits of abiding in him is this supernatural Joy that comes to you because of the strength and the quality of your relationship. Nowhere in the Gospels, and matter of fact, nowhere in the Bible, does it promise you happiness. Okay? But it does promise a constant sense of joy in your heart regardless of circumstances. You can be in some of the, the hardest circumstances and still have joy. Um, a joy that is... Um, I'm sorry, 
slipped a groove. I'll come back. Hang on. A few years ago, um, we had a, an accident at a at a church picnic. Um, softball was hit, and my eye shattered, and I basically lost the sight out of my left eye. I, I still can sort of see out of it, but it's pretty useless. Um, and and during the time when after the, immediately after the hit, I was just, you know bowed over, bowed over with pain and holding my eye. And I was just saying, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, right? It's bleeding all over the place, but I didn't know it. That was not me, <laughs> all right? Typically me would be cussing, swearing, you know, and shouting and screaming and doing all of that stuff. But yet, even though it hit, and I found out that, okay, we're going to do constructive, reconstructive surgery. And, oh, by the way, you know, you're going to always be seeing double out of that eye. And you're really not going to be able to make anything, any sense out of it. And on and on and on it went. It's like, okay, it's all right. It's all good. And I could really say that. It's all good. It's all good. No, I'm just sending it to heaven one piece at a time, you know. And joy, Jesus said that this joy would be given to me in proportion to me abiding in his word, abiding in him. It's a supernatural joy. So in the midst of affliction, you can have joy. Now, I read of a, a father um, in Sudan who witnessed his son being beheaded. And he obviously was heartbroken. But he, he felt no ill will towards those who had perpetrated the act. He said the same thing like Stephen said. He said the same thing that Jesus said. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now that guy, <laughs> that is joy in extraordinary circumstances. I, I just lost an eye. He lost a son. I don't know if I could do that. Okay. So if you see me getting in an accident or something and I'm just in the flesh and I'm losing it, just say, ah, he's being tested again. Okay? I like to handle everything with grace and perseverance and endurance. But I don't always. But this church is handling it in this persecution that's breaking out. And this becomes an example to the churches in the region and to us. Look at verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So they had a reputation, a reputation of being a godly church amongst the other churches. And eventually they're going to have a reputation even in the community of being godly friendly, sociable people who all the rumors are totally not true. And they're going to handle that persecution with such grace and perseverance, not lashing out at their persecutors, that it's going to cause the church to grow exponentially. It's going to grow. It's an accepting church. It's, it's filled with slaves, and they accept each other as equals, and so that's just going to blow the doors open because that's just not normal, okay? It's not normal. And 
for that reason, they are examples to other churches. This opened the door to evangelism. Evangelism is one of the missions of the church. Right? What are our marching orders according to Matthew 28? Go, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all the things that I commanded you. Right? That's our marching orders. Um, true evangelism is a byproduct of a very healthy church who's enduring and who's loving towards one another. It just happens. It's been said that the church that does not evangelize fossilizes, or the church that will not evangelize will fossilize. And I am prayerful that we are doing our our bit to evangelize and pray that we would even probably take it a little bit more seriously and, and get a little bit deeper with that. Certainly I know of individuals who are all about it. They're all about sharing Christ. But it's not a program. It's not a get out there and do that because I feel guilty. It's man, I can't help but share it. Verse 9. They themselves declare concerning us, that's the other churches, what manner of entry which means the influence that we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's got to be difficult to turn your back on all of your traditions to follow something that has not been proven. It's hardly even been known. Um, I know of people who leave a faith or even leave uh, parts of the Christian church that are attached to idols and statue worship, and they, they give it up to follow Christ and Christ alone, but it's not comfortable at first, especially at first, because these things are really, really ingrained in you. Um, it's just as hard today for people to turn from their idols to faith in Christ. You know, the American idols, despite what you see on TV, are the pursuits of pleasure, the worship of self, the amassing of wealth, and a firm conviction and faith in science and in science alone. Those are the, the major idols, and they have a lot of little idols that come in there. But to believe in Jesus? I don't think so, Tim. Okay? It's not something that, that people are prone to do. But still, every day... As the Lord moves upon people, they are turning from their idols. Okay, let's go to verse 10. Or we are in verse 10. Okay, notice he says they're waiting for Jesus to deliver us from the wrath to come. Now this must have confused them, right? Because they are being persecuted. And whenever someone's persecuting you, you're wondering... God, why are you allowing this to happen? Or more at the point, God, why are you doing this to me? As if God is standing up there with, with a baseball bat smacking you over the head. There's a difference between the persecution of the church and the great tribulation, all right? The persecution on Christians comes from others here on earth. The tribulation is the wrath of God on a Christ-rejecting world. It would be very inconsistent for God to pour out his wrath on 
of the church. Genesis 18, if you want to turn there real quick. Genesis 18, verse 22. You're familiar with this story, I'm sure. The Lord has appeared to Abraham with a couple of angels. And they're headed towards Sodom because the sin of Sodom has reached its peak. It's reached the tipping point, And the wrath of God is going to be poured out on Sodom. When Abraham hears about it, he realizes, of course, his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. So he's, he's concerned, as he should be, even as we are of our relatives who don't know Christ, and we contemplate the second coming of Christ. Well, Abraham, as you know, begins bargaining with the Lord. And in verse 23, he said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? I mean, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? And then verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. You shall not, shall not the judge of the earth do right see that's called taking god's promises and putting them right back in front of them all right it's taking what you know about the character and about the attributes of god and praying those things i mean to me i mean you might look at saying that's a little cheeky there you know abraham you're i mean you're getting you know do you know who you're talking to by the way no don't be so disrespectful but apparently god doesn't see it as disrespect he sees it as faith and, of course, what is Abraham doing? He's interceding. He's boldly interceding for his nephew, Lot. And, of course, verse 32, God says, I will not destroy it for the sake of even ten people. Did he find ten? No, he couldn't, right? He found four, sort of. <laughs> and even then, they literally had to drag them out of Sodom, literally, all right? Now, 2 Peter 2.9 has a little commentary on this. Turn to 2 Peter in the New Testament and look at Peter's commentary on this little event. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly people from their trials. The trial speaking of here is like the trial Lot was facing when the wrath of God is going to be coming down upon the city that he's living in, and God delivered him from that trial. So God knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. So, yeah, punishment and judgment's going to come. The persecution you're facing is not that punishment. And when the wrath of God does come, you're not going to be here because God will deliver you. And when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll totally get into that. But what it says here, we, you, me, us, are not appointed 
to wrath. You don't have an appointment with God's wrath. Jesus took that appointment for you at the cross. You have an appointment and a destiny for paradise in God, even though you suffer persecution today. All right? Let's go to chapter 2. We'll get as far as we can here. Um, I didn't get quite as far as I thought. I have a counter at home. Actually, it's on the computer. It tells me how many words um, my sermon is or my teaching is, right? And I have 3,000 words in my teaching. And it's supposed to take uh, 25 minutes to get through 3,000 words. That's what the computer says. Uh, I don't know how many words I've spoken, but we're almost out of time, and I'm only in chapter 2. So, um, what should I do? What should I do? 1023, 1024. All right, let's go as far as we can go, okay? You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Remember what happened to Paul in Philippi? Right? He and Silas, they were dragged out into the middle of the town, they were beaten, they were stripped, and then they were thrown into a dungeon, to a dank, dirty cell. And they were so upset about it that they began singing praises to God. You know, thy loving kindness is better than life. The other inmates told them to shut up, and then they said, what are you going to do, beat us? And the whole point was, is that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to purpose. And later on, he would write, hey, I've been appointed to this. This is part of the, the price that I said that I would pay. And remember, God did something for Paul that he never has done for us. At least I don't think he's done this for you. Has he already showed you what your next 10 years are going to be like? How about your next 10 minutes? No, we got no idea, right? But Paul, he laid it out for him. He says, I'm going to show you everything you're going to go through and what you're going to have to suffer for my namesake. Well, God must have known something that we didn't know because Paul was all for it, okay? And he was. He was a very unusual man that way. But he'd been thrown into a dungeon in Philippi. And in verse 3, it says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. My exhortation, our, our sharing of the gospel, our, our teaching you. It didn't come because we were wanting your money, Okay. We weren't being immoral in preaching in this. Our, our, our motivation is sincere and pure. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. So it wasn't about the Benjamins. It wasn't about the money. We're not doing this because it's a great career option. We're doing this because we've been entrusted with something that's more precious than money. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're willing to pay the price for this precious piece of good news. I wished that some of the so-called evangelists that we see on TV... Who, who preach a prosperity gospel would get a hold of this 
because they're going to be held accountable for what they preach, and they're going to be held accountable for the motivations behind their ministries. And I wouldn't want to stand in their shoes. I remember I actually worked with an evangelist who was part of that crowd. And uh, I was sitting with my wife and my sweet mother-in-law, who was, you know, a pastor's wife, lost her husband when Sherry was only seven years old, moved to the projects of Phoenix near County Hospital, worked at a job for the city for a career and a job she did not like, but stayed fast with it. And she got the kids out of there, moved to a place that became Maryvale. All right, if you know anything about Phoenix and Maryvale, rough neighborhood. And she raised those kids basically in, in, in the ghetto. And we're sitting there at this dinner, and this evangelist has the guy shut and lock the doors. And he says, the Lord has told me that someone in here is going to give $10,000, and we're not leaving until they obey God. And all of a sudden, my heart just melted because my poor, precious mother-in-law is sitting there. Now, I know she gave. I don't know how much she gave, but I think $5 was too much, too much. Um, that was wrong, and I could, not, I could not bear with that, and it was long after that that I split. I left. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, stomach that. And then he says in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. The glory he's speaking of is not popularity. The glory he's speaking of is financial support. The glory of financial support. He was self-supporting. Some of the other apostles were supported by the churches, and that was totally fine, acceptable and good. Matter of fact, Paul says they should have been supported. But me, I, Paul, not going to happen. I'm going to pay my own way so that no one, no one can accuse me of doing it for the money. All right, we'll, we'll stop there, and we'll pick it up from that verse when we come back next week. I hope you are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. I hope you realize that that will be the great equalizer to all things suffered on this earth and during this time. Um, I hope that you are not grieved by the political situation in our nation. And I hope you just see it as just part of, of the plan. It's just part of the plan. If God knows and God's ordained it, then God's going to equip us and sustain us through it no matter what happens. And hey, who knows? Maybe we're in for the next four best years that America has ever seen. We don't know. Certainly we don't know. I know there's not very many people expecting that kind of thing. But again, bottom line oriented, we are headed to be with Jesus in paradise. Billy Graham, let me quote him one last time, and then we will pray. The second coming of Christ will be so revolutionary that it will change every aspect of life on this planet. Christ will reign in righteousness. Disease will be arrested. Death will be modified. War will be abolished. Nature will be changed. 
man will live as it was originally intended he should live. And cats will become acceptable. Okay. <laughs> all right. Let's all stand. Thanks for coming out, guys. I pray that you were blessed and that you were fed. And I hope you have enough time to get home and rest. Because tomorrow's your last chance, right? <laughs>